Now, as you know, we're going to talk about, in a few moments, a building renovation plan here at Trinity. We've been talking about this for months. It's nothing new. So I wanted to do a theology of building. And I went through it, and I did a whole message on it, and went all the way through it. And it was a big, long lecture on God's change of things. And then I came back, and I said, no, no, no. That is missing the whole point. What is the point of renovation? What is the point of expanding? What is the point of even trying to better your facilities or build or enlarge your facilities? And the bottom line is, is that God's actions happen in place, space, and time. In other words, God the Father has chosen to work through people to engage in the lives of other people to share hope and truth and love and encouragement so that these people may have transformed and changed lives so that in turn they may reach other people and share their life. That happens in a space and in a place. And if COVID taught us anything, it taught us that the church had better have its own space and place. And if COVID taught us anything else, it taught us that the church had better be looking for their niche and their need and their community. As a matter of fact, if church buildings are only occupied one time a week on Sunday morning, that church is in major trouble. And as a matter of fact, we have been intentional on our facility, reaching out, sharing with the county clerk and other people that we want our building to be used. By the way, Trinity is now the voting precinct of this new block. Did you all know that? They will be coming to our facility. The people from all over our community will be coming here, and they're going to be voting. We're going to be speaking to them. We're going to have opportunities because we can put things on the outside of the building about Jesus and pointing people to Jesus. We don't tell them who to vote for. (laughs) Wish we could, but, you know, we're not going to say that. But the point is, we're going to have visibility. We also want to do other things that are very helpful to people. We want to have blood drives. We want to be needed in our community. We want to know people who are broken, who have lost loved ones, who have went through the tragedy of divorce, who are trying to parent single on their own. People are struggling with their finances and don't know how to manage their money. We want to help them with practical life issues so that they can be better equipped in how to live their life in this world. There's also a tremendous need, folks, for people to help raise their children. Trinity struggles with that, and I debated on whether to even share this with you. But before I came, Trinity had looked into the possibility of what's called a family life center. And I don't mean to be dumping all this on you. I was going to share it in a vision sermon. But as a church and as a church body, if we are not looking 10 years out in the future, then we are missing what God wants us to do. This church must, did you hear me, must prepare to meet the needs of the future. If we have no ministries for young families and young children in this church, it will die. It'll die. Church will no longer be, we want to meet for an hour on Sunday morning, preach a sermon, take an offering, and you go home. Those churches are closing their doors. Churches have to be needed in the community in order to last. And if a church doesn't have the vision to understand that, their doors will close. 
And the way that you make an impact in the community is you touch the hearts of the children and you change the lives of the parents. And if we can't do that, we will not exist. We can preach the greatest sermons, we can preach the greatest this and the greatest that and have the greatest teaching. If we're not reaching people and changing their life, starting at that age up, we're going to miss it. We'll miss it. We've got to do that. So as we talk about renovation, let me promise you something. That is not the ultimate goal. I mean, we've had to move this and move that to get to the foyer. That's just our face. We want to do something back here that's going to reach the hearts and the lives of people for generations to come. And by the way, that's not about me. My kids are grown and gone. It has nothing to do with my family. And all my boys are crying. They were like, Dad, we wanted a basketball court. (laughs) But my point is, you know, one day I'm going to be an older man and I won't be here. And you won't either. But we want Trinity to be here because this church is bigger than me and it's bigger than just you. This is God's ministry. And I believe God wants to move the hearts of his people so that we will do what he wants us to do and we will change this community. God put us right here in Midtown. Do you all know we're Midtown? hundreds and hundreds of people straight across the street from us. I say this all the time. If we had a fraction of them, we wouldn't know what to do with them. If we had a fraction of them, we would not know what to do with them. If 150 people came into our church right now, you all would be spazzing. (laughs) Don't tell me you wouldn't. You'd be going, where are we sitting? There's nowhere to sit. We're going to have to have two services. But if we have two services and I won't see that person, that person won't see me, what are we going to do? That's called a leadership crisis. It's a blessing and it's a curse. But you know what? We want to see that. We want to see that. We we pray that God would move upon Christiansburg. God would move upon our hearts. And that God would cause us to want to get involved in what he's doing in the life-changing business. And as I thought about that, I began to pray, Oh God, show me something that talks about the hearts of your people and your heart, and how that will change us. And you know, God led me, if you like to use that term, to a wonderful passage in the book of Exodus. God took the nation of Israel to Mount Sinai when he carried them out of Egypt, and then he told them as they were wandering through the wilderness, he wanted them to do something. And in Exodus 25, 8, this is what he said, Let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. God wanted his people to make him a tent so that he would be able to dwell and come down and live in their visible presence. And God did that for several reasons, because he was going to guide them through the land, he was going to lead them where he wanted them, but he also wanted that as a visible testimony to the nations who would see the nation of Israel and see their great God, and would come to know him as their Savior. So, when we think about the construction of the tabernacle, do you know God could have, if he wanted to, provided all the needs miraculously, just like he did when he created the heavens and the earth, and just said, be there. But do you know that God did not do that? As a matter of fact, when God wanted them to build the tabernacle, he never demanded One time that anybody must give anything. 
He said that he wanted his tabernacle to be a free will offering. No coercion, no building scheme, no trying to coerce people to do something. And by the way, you know, sometimes people are wondering, why is Trinity borrowing money on the foyer instead of just paying for it? We'll talk about that in a minute. But we had an option, an opportunity with you all. And as your pastor, we shot that down. You know what it was? It was to hire a building consultant to come in here and sit down with you and raise money from you individually so that you would give to a building program. As your pastor, I sat there and listened to this this scheme, and I'm not saying it's necessarily bad. It's worked. And these people told us we've raised hundreds and thousands and millions of dollars in building. But it's basically setting you down in a, in a way and saying, you know, here's what it is, please give. It's a little bit of a pressure tactic. No, no, no force, but it is some. And I thought to myself, no, that's not how we want to approach this. People at Trinity are givers. They share. They're free. I don't want to do that. Here's what we'll do. We'll say, we believe God is leading us in this direction. If you feel like God's leading us in this direction and you want to be part of that, help us. And if you don't, pray for us and support us. Okay, you don't have to give to it because nobody's forcing anybody to do anything. That is exactly what God did to the nation of Israel. Listen to what he said now. In Exodus 25, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution. Now look at the text. From every man, and by the way, the word man there is a generic for men and women, from every person whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. You all see that in the text. I'm not making that up. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Now listen to what God asked for. Gold. Now hold on for a minute. Anybody have any gold? Anybody have any stock in gold or gold? I hear it's pretty valuable right now. He asked for gold. Do you know how much gold God asked for? Y'all ready for this? Over a ton. Over 2,000 pounds of gold God wanted. He also asked for silver. You know how much silver God asked for? He asked for about four ton of silver. And he also asked for bronze. Anybody sold any bronze lately? He wanted about two and a half ton of bronze to build this tabernacle. Now let me tell you something. People say, well, it was just a tent out in the... Uh, this was a very expensive tent. <laughs> you want to know why? Because God's presence was represented there and God wasn't going to live in a Cracker Jack box. <laughs> Receive from every man whose heart moves him the contribution for me, and this is the contribution, gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, very expensive, fine twined linen. And now, if some people didn't have that royalty, everybody had a goat. I'll take some goat hair, tanned ram skins, 
from people who eat ram steak, and you know everybody had to eat it. Goat skins, and for people who don't have those animals, I'll take acacia wood. For those who don't have that, oil for the lamps. See, he's, he's touching the rich, and he's getting all the way down to the people who can only give some oil and some wood. And spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. Onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod, for the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so that you shall make it. Now God wanted his people to make it. And and this is kind of what it looked like. The purpose was so that he could dwell in their midst, And right here is where he wanted this tabernacle to kind of represent. And this tabernacle, and I've heard people preach this, and I've seen them dress up in all the, you know, the high priest will dress up, and he'll come into a church, and he'll preach, and, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. It's a wonderful lesson. But what really gets problematic is when people start saying, now the curtain represents this about Jesus, and the hood applies to your Christian life in this way, and the tent means this to stop all that. The point of the tabernacle was that a holy God for the first time in humanity was going to come down and live in the midst of his people. And his visible presence was going to dwell there. And if they were going to know him, they were going to have to learn how to live with God as their neighbor. And this is why the book of Leviticus is written. You know, I have people tell me all the time, Leviticus is the most ridiculous book ever. I can't stand when I have to read through Leviticus. Well, if you'll answer this question, it'll make sense. How should I live with God as my neighbor? Now, do I use the porta potty right inside the tabernacle? Do I just go and kill whatever I want to and sling it over the curtain of the tent in the tabernacle and do whatever I want? Nope. Nope. God said, no, you're not going to do that. If I'm your neighbor, this is how you're going to have to live amongst me because I'm holy and you're going to be holy. And this is, this is what happened in the nation of Israel, by the way. God was going to dwell and live in their midst. And for the first time in history, there was no way anybody could pay for intentional sin. If you went out and absolutely, out of your own will, decided you were going to sin against God, listen closely, and you said, you know what, I'm going to do this even though I know it's wrong, and you went out and you sinned, do you realize there was not one sacrifice that you could offer to have your sin atoned for? Not one! So what did you do if you went out and voluntarily sinned against God? Well, you waited for one day out of the year, which was called the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Yom, Day, Kippur, Atonement. The day of the atoning for the intentional sins of the nation. And on that day, the high priest would take two animals, one he would slay for himself, one he would slay for the people, and then they would release one out into the wilderness. And that offering, people would have to pay attention. You couldn't sit there and scroll through Facebook when that offering was being made. Because if you didn't by faith see that the wrath was being poured out on that animal and its blood was being poured over the broken covenant, the broken commandments in that ark, if you didn't by faith 
realize that that was done for you, it didn't count. And you can read Leviticus. That's exactly what Moses says. He says, if you're reading the newspaper while that's going on, it doesn't count for you. And then you have to wait for the next year. So this was a place where God met the practical needs of his people. And not only them, but the nations of the world that came around them. One ton of gold, four tons of silver, two tons of bronze. Some people said that it depended on the value at the time of the metal, but it was a multi-million dollar Winnebago. High dollars. As a matter of fact, if you study the inside of the tabernacle, which I don't have time to do, but if you go and read the details, you'll see stars, you'll see pomegranates, you'll see all the... It's a picture of what it was like in the Garden of Eden, and it's also a picture of third heaven. This was a replica of the chamber of God right now. So when people die and absent from the body is present with the Lord, did you know that God has an inner tabernacle that's up in third heaven? And he told Moses, you're to make it exactly like the one that I'm going to show you because this is a physical representation of what third heaven is like down here on earth. And you saw the stars and the cherubim and all of that. And it was an awesome sight. When Greg was reading Psalm 145 this morning, and by the way, if you read some of the other Psalms, it talks about God and his feet on the footstool of the ark. The ark of the covenant was God's place where he physically, he didn't have physical feet, but it's where they pictured him sitting on top of the ark of the covenant on his throne. And the two cherubim were guarding that guarding his presence. It was an awesome sight. And so they were to make it. So now, what do we learn about this? What's the significance? And I was going to go through all these texts because they're wonderful. If you want to look at them, you can go back and you can look at these passages. But three major purposes, and there's, there's nine, but I'm going to be nice and give you just three. Number one, it signified God's presence with his people. He told Moses at the burning bush, I want to dwell with my people. And I know who I am. Y'all listen to this phrase. I am. Moses said, well, God, if I go tell them that, and they say, who shall I say sent me? You tell them, I am sent you. Do you know what I am means? The word I am means I am present with you. Who am I going to tell them sent us? You tell them the one who's present with them is the one who sent you. By the way, when Jesus in John chapter 8 said, before Abraham was, what did he say? Before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews picked up rocks and were ready to kill him. You want to know why? Because Jesus was saying he was the one who was back there with Moses, directing the history of the nations all that time. That's our Jesus, by the way. It was signified by God's presence with his people. It was a visible place where God met with Israel. I talked about that. His glory was revealed there in a special way, and he made atonement for their sin, and God led them. He guided them. He provided a pillar by the day. How many of y'all were outside in the hot sun yesterday? Yeah, it was nice, wasn't it? But about 4 o'clock, if you were out there very long, you was looking for shade, weren't you? If you ever been out in the desert, shade clouds awful nice. God provided shade during the day, and what did he provide at night? 
a kerosene lantern, a heater, pillar to shade by night and heat and fire, uh, cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. And when God would rise up from this tabernacle and move, guess what the children of Israel were to do? They were to follow him. Now, by the way, wouldn't you like for God to lead you like that in life? Well, do you know he does? We just don't see it, do we? He guides us. He leads us. Third, it was a place where the nations could witness the glory of Israel's God. God told the nation of Israel to put his tabernacle there so that all people, all the nations could see it and know that there was no God except the one in Israel. Now, how does this come across to us in the New Testament? Well, Jesus, did you know that the writer of John says that he tabernacled among us? It's the word for tabernacle. Listen to this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The literal word is to tabernacle. In the same way that God was present with the people back in the Old Testament, Jesus did the same with us. And we have seen his glory. What did they see in the tabernacle? His glory. The glory of the the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you know that the Apostle Paul says that our body is a tabernacle or a temple of the Spirit? Listen to this. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? You have received from God. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Why is it important for a believer not to sin? The answer is because we are a temple of God's Holy Spirit. Just like the Old Testament nation of Israel would not sin back in the tabernacle times, a believer is not to defile their body. And so these parallels come right across. And by the way, this is something so wonderful because God's intention, not just in the Old Testament, not just now, but out in eternity future, is that he may dwell with his people. The Garden of Eden will be restored in a marvelous way. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. We're going to hear this, folks. We're going to hear a loud voice coming from the throne of God. Look at what the text says. They will be his peoples. I'm going to read it plural because that's what it is. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He's going to dwell with us. Now, what does that have to do with us? Here's what it has to do with us. Do you know that when our heart is touched by God's grace, we feel compelled to give? I read a story this week of a man who wrote this. How many of y'all have ever heard of the man who wrote the book on heaven, Randy Alcorn? Anybody ever heard him? Randy Alcorn tells a story. Listen to what he says. Giving to God is an important sign of our commitment to Christ. Our willingness to give back some of what we own is one of the leading indicators of our spiritual health. Now, listen. 
your giving statement reflects your spiritual standing and your heart. This is what he's saying. Generosity is one of the vital signs of real Christianity, and a Christian who isn't giving probably isn't growing. How unfortunate this is that today there is so little sound teaching on stewardship and giving. Some ministers are obsessed with money. They spend all their time talking about it. One thinks of the televangelist who preached the prosperity gospel. They seem unable to talk for more than five minutes without mentioning how important it is to support their ministry financially. Once I watched a minister who was desperate for pledges say to his television audience, just pick up the blank phone and call. He says, on the other hand, some Christians are too embarrassed to talk about money at all. They view their finances as a private matter and say that it's none of the church's business. One minister received the following letter, and by the way, this was Randy Alcorn. He received this letter. Mr. Alcorn, I was never so disappointed in a service as I was Sunday. I invited an unbelieving friend that I got to come with me, and what were you preaching about? Money. I can assure you, she was not impressed, and neither was I. And why money, when there are so many beautiful things to say about God? You as a pastor had better reconsider such messages in the future. Leave money to God, and he will handle everything, believe me. Now, I love this church, and usually I like your sermons, but that one was terrible. Signed, a Christian who loves to go to church and hear the word. (laughs) Do you know that money and stewardship is mentioned over 400 times in the Bible? Do you know God says more about money than he does heaven or hell? Did you know that? Do you know that Jesus says more about it than anybody else ever? You know why he said that? Because listen to his terse statement. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No man can serve two masters. You can't serve money and God. You'll either be a slave to the one and bow to the other or a slave to the other and bow to the one, but you can't serve both. Now, Jesus said that, not me, so you'll have to write him the letter if you don't like that. So listen to what this man says. He says, well, sooner or later, anyone who wants to hear God's word will hear a sermon on giving if they preach the Bible because it's an important biblical theme, and therefore we must be careful to give instruction about what God says. So, Let me just share a couple of truths and lessons that we learn from this tabernacle construction. Here they are. Number one, did you know that when we give, it should be a gift given to God himself? Listen to what 25.2 says. Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. Now, when the people made out their checks... They made it out to the temple in the wilderness. But in reality, it was given to God. They handed their gold and their silver and their bronze over to who? To the people who were constructing and gathering the material for the tabernacle. 
But who was the offering given to? God said, me. It is a contribution to me. There's a second lesson we learn, and that's this. That whenever we give of a free will offering, it should be from a movement in our heart. It should be from a movement in our heart. In other words, God actually moves you to give. Now, did you know one of the reasons that giving is active in the New Testament church is because it is a way of worship. It's actually a a means by which you worship God when you give. What does this phrase mean, everyone whose heart moves him? Literally, in Hebrew, it means whoever's heart makes him vow. Have you ever heard someone be sharing a need with you and they say, this is a need, and I have this need, and, you know, if God moves your heart to help, and you're just sitting there listening, you go like this in yourself. They don't hear you, but you say, I need to give to that. I need to give to that because that, it's just something that moves me. Do you know what that is? That is the Holy Spirit of God in your heart offering you a chance to be involved in something that God is prompting you to do. Now, I read a story about a lady this week who had gotten a large inheritance. She was a Christian. And she said that she believed God wanted her to give to this organization. And she wrote in her diary and later died. And somebody was skimming through her diary. And this is what she said. Oh, heart, act quick. Write the check now before my heart grows cold. And she actually went and she wrote... And she gave what God moved her heart to give. When our hearts make us vow, it should be from a movement in our heart. The third lesson that we learn is it should be out of gratitude for what God has done for us. Listen to what the text says. Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive it. Now why should their hearts be moved? This was interesting, and I just want to read it to you. What had happened in the life of these people who caused them to give? Very interesting. Well, God had rescued them from slavery. He had showered them with treasure. He had delivered them from their enemies. He had led them through the wilderness. He had provided water to drink and food to eat. He had given them his word from the mountain of God. He had shown them his law and also his glory. And he had provided atonement for their sins through the blood of the covenant that he made with them. Out of the rich abundance of his grace, he had done everything necessary for their salvation. And when they reflected on what God had done, their hearts swelled with gratitude. They were compelled by grace to give something back to God. Has that ever happened in your life? I mean, you just pause for a moment and think about God's goodness to you and how gracious he's been. And we say to ourselves, how could we not? How could we not give back to God what he asks of us? It should be out of gratitude for what he's done. What has he done for us? Well, He's met our needs for food and shelter. 
Amen. Did you all sleep in a wonderful place last night? Not only that, he's given us his word. We don't walk around in a mystery wondering who God is. We don't have to wonder what God's going to be like tomorrow or what God's going to be like if something catastrophic happens. Does God change? Do you know that we know as God's people he doesn't change? Do we ever have to worry about God telling us a lie? God will never lie. How do we know that? Because he's given us his word. Do you know that he's told us that if we have trusted in Jesus and believed on him for eternal life, he has forgiven us all sin, past, present, and future? You, do you hear, are you hearing me? You are never going to stand before God the Father and answer one time for the penalty of your sin because it was paid for on the cross. You don't have to guess about that. Your relationship with God has been settled. Now, your fellowship might be a, something that we have to be in fellowship, but our relationship is settled. God has given us his word. I mean, praise his name for that. And I could go on. We're rich and we're blessed. What is the fourth lesson that we should learn about stewardship from this? That it should be our best. God told them, I want gold, silver, bronze, and he went down the list that I shared, and everybody had a chance to be involved. They could all do it. One man wrote, In the construction of the tabernacle of the Lord, the poor people who donated goat skins or hair were as welcome to God as those who donated gold, silver, or gems. Isn't that something interesting about the nature of God? He certainly isn't like a man, is he? You know, when people go after donors, who do they go after? They go after people that have the money. God's not like that. God wanted everybody to participate. And he, he honored people who had little and who had much. As a matter of fact, if you want to get technical and you go over in the life of our Lord, do you remember last week, Passion Week, do you know one of the last actions Jesus did in Passion Week before he went to the cross? He took his disciples to the temple. And he sat down at the temple by the offering box and there was a little old widow that came up there and she pulled out a mite. Now I wish I had one. I've got one over in my office. It looks like a half of a penny that's been laid on a railroad track and squashed and then somebody that's taken a hammer and beat the edges of it. It's just an old warped looking piece of flimsy metal. That's what you'd buy a piece of gum with out of a gumball machine. And the, the widow came and threw in her mite. And Jesus, standing back, looked at his disciples and said, I want you to know something today. She gave more than all the congressmen. She gave more than Elon Musk. She gave more than, you just go ahead and name it, she gave more than all of them. You want to know why? Because they gave out of their abundance, and she gave out of her poverty. In God's eyes, that little bitty coin was more than the millions that went. It's quite amazing. God wants our best. And then the fifth lesson that we learn is simply this. It is for God's work, and it's for his glory. 
You know, one time my boys, when I was wanting, it was going to be my birthday. They may or may not remember this. They don't like for me to, uh, here, let me rephrase that. One time there was a dad, <clears throat> and his kids wanted to buy him something, but they didn't have any money, so they came and asked him for some money. This particular father may or may not have given his children some money, and they bought him something. And they brought it back to him. And you know what his father, what, what their father did? As only a father could, he rejoiced and said, Oh, how sweet. They thought of me. Now, are y'all hearing me carefully? When we give back to God, that is exactly what it looks like. He gives us the health, the strength, the knowledge, the intellect, the will, the energy, the emotion, and the health to go and make money. And sometimes he funnels it in our hand, and then he gives us an opportunity to give it back to us, and then he rewards us for it. And you know why he does it? Because it's all for his work and his glory, and he gives us a chance to partner. Now, what happened? What happened? Aren't you glad I asked that? Well, let me tell you what happened. If you read Exodus 32, you'll find out Moses went up on the mountain for 40 days and the children of Israel got tired of waiting on him and decided they'd make him a golden calf. Boy, God got mad. Moses came down, broke the Ten Commandments, chastised all the people, made them drink the water. God killed some of them. And then Moses went back up on the mountain again. He got the Ten Commandments and he came back down. And he repeated the same thing. You know what happened? Listen to what happened. And they came, everyone, whose heart stirred them. I'm in 35 now. I was in 25 a minute ago. And everyone whose spirit moved him, and they brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for all the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart brought brooches. You know, y'all know what a brooch is? That's a, that's a nose ring. Or one you stick through your jaws. Y'all ever seen them jaw rings that you put in? They brought them. Signet rings and armlets and all sorts of gold objects. Every man dedicated an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple scarlet or yarn or fine linen of goat's hair or tanned ram skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it for the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed a kaywood of any use in the work brought it. Every skilled woman, ladies, they weren't left out. Every skilled woman spun with her hands and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skills spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set up for the ephod and for the breastplate and spices and oil for the light, for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them. How many times has he said that? to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a, what? Free will offering. 
Not a command. A free will. I want to give this freely. No compulsion. No urging. No brow beating. It was an opportunity. God moved my heart and I wanted to do it. Now let me ask you a question. How many of you would have given to the tabernacle? And I'm not saying that our renovation is equivalent to the tabernacle. So don't even go there. I would have invested in the tabernacle, wouldn't you? At least I would have hoped I would have. Now, what happened? Well, guess what happened? When they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work of the sanctuary, they still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and he said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. There's so much gold here in the way and silver and stones. We're tripping over them. We can't even make everything. So Moses gave the command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. And y'all imagine this in a building campaign. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. Stop your giving. We don't want another dime. <laughs> Can you imagine? All the needs have been met. So the people were restrained from bringing. The text in Hebrew actually reads that they had to stand out there and say, we said no. You can't pile any more up here. You can't. For the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. So what is the point out of all of this? Well, the point is, is where God guides, he provides. Where he guides, he provides. We believe that God is guiding us to move in this phase. But I want you to know it's not the last phase because we believe there's another phase that's yet to come. And with God's help and God's leading and the people of God involved, because this is God's work and we're all in this together, then we'll do it. And we don't want to wait until I'm an old man and retired before we do it. We need to move. And we need to move quicker, quickly and quicker. So we'll pray and you pray and may God get the glory for all the people that he's going to bring and have their lives touched here because of Trinity Community Church and its mission of pointing people to Jesus Christ. Father, thank you so much this morning for the privilege that you give us to be involved in ministry. We believe, God, that you want to do things here in our church, through our life, and we do, in fact, know that you're active and you're present with your people. So we pray, O oh God, that you'll move in our hearts along with the other churches in our area. And we thank God for each one of them that preaches the gospel and is reaching people for Jesus. We pray that you'll give every Bible-teaching, believing church a fresh movement of your spirit, fresh enthusiasm that we might reach the people in this town 
that you have put in our life to help them to know that there is a God who loves them, a Christ who died for them, and an eternity that we have an opportunity to spend with you. So we thank you for it, and we praise your name. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.